When Jesus turned and saw them following, he said to them, What are you looking for? And they said to him, Rabbi, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come and see. They came and saw where he was staying, and they remained with him that day. If Jesus asked what we are looking for, could we answer like they did? That's the Reverend Dr. Charles Qualls, and today he offers an inspiring sermon called Two Powerful Stories and a Distraction. I'm Peter Wallace. It's day one. Welcome to Day One, the weekly program that brings you outstanding preachers from America's historic Protestant churches, sharing insight and inspiration from God's Word for your life. Now to introduce this week's preacher, here's our host, Peter Wallace. Thank you, Sherry. We're honored to welcome back to Day One today the Reverend Dr. Charles Qualls, Senior Pastor of Franklin Baptist Church in Franklin, Virginia. Before accepting that call in 2017, he was Associate Pastor of Second Ponce de Leon Baptist Church in Atlanta for 16 years, and before that served churches in Georgia, North Carolina, and Kentucky. The author or co-author of nine books, Charles is a graduate of West Georgia College and earned his Master of Divinity from Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, and his Doctor of Ministry from Mercer University McAfee School of Theology in Atlanta. Charles, thanks for being with us again. Great to be back, Peter. Last week, you shared about some of the ministries going on at Franklin Baptist Church, where you've served for five years now, just about. What have you grown to appreciate about the church and the community in the time you've been there? It is such a different place to live compared with Midtown Atlanta. But the people there um, are pretty unified, pretty noticeably Mm -hmm. unified. That's not to say there aren't any rivalries and competitions in town. But it is a more laid back and uh, friendly, welcoming atmosphere, um, compared to larger cities, and we find it to be a pretty healthy, quality of life place mm-hmm. to live, mm-hmm. and um, so we're enjoying ourselves. They have accepted us so unbelievably well for two people who just moved in five years ago. <laughs> there, we're still newcomers. Yeah. You are quite an accomplished author with nine books and counting, but in recent years you've been working on an interesting project that I hope will end up in a book. It's a series of short stories about experiences visiting Bubba Doo's, a southern-style mom-and-pop gas station and community center and restaurant. How did that come about? I'm not really sure how that came about. <laughs> it struck me that it might be fun to process the intersection of church and culture, and not do so through op-ed pieces. Hmm. And so I began to think how much fun it might be to do short story Southern fiction. Mm -hmm. Now, the only issue is I had never written any short story Southern (laughs) fiction. Most of my writing is a little more utilitarian Mm -hmm. in nature, curricula and the like. So this for me was a new exercise, but I've been astounded at how well it's been received. And uh, there are now 14 Bubba Doo stories that are distributed 
by Baptist News Global, a uh, news wire service, and uh, they've been gracious to publish these. And uh, yeah, we have hopes. Uh, we have an agreement in principle that they're going to become a book after they're about 20 or so mm-hmm. of them. So say more about these stories and maybe give us an example or two. The stories are set up uh, all with the country store as a backdrop. It's a it's a quirky thing. It's a country store gas station that has a restaurant and bar inside it. <laughs> uh, and these actually these places do actually exist. Yeah. There's one in Virginia near where I live and serve now. Uh, there is one down in Middle Georgia uh, that we are familiar with, and and certainly there must be others. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so these stories are drawn a little bit from my own experiences of growing up in my father's mm-hmm. country store. Uh, it's just that I expanded the, the, the fictional backdrop for them. And so um, if if I am in these stories, it may be as the storyteller, the minister who is always a participant in the stories. The people in these stories are also real. Some of them are from my father's country store that I knew growing up. Some of them are people who I've known in different places where we've lived. Uh, there are a couple of uh, waitresses in the restaurant in these stories that have become very popular, and they are two very real young women who are in our life right now at a restaurant we like to go to back uh. in Virginia. One of the stories that I wrote was where a regular at Bubba Doo's asks the minister uh, the difference between his church and the sort of hip, new, groovy church uh. that's across uh, the way. And so that one uh, debriefs different styles mm-hmm. of churches and how uh, there's no uh, better or best or worst, but very different and and how those interface. Uh, another one of them, a regular at Bubba Doo's, uh, who's there every day, just like in the old Cheers television mm. show. He's up at the bar every day and his wife dies of cancer. Mm. And so that story explores how the regulars support him and love him through a brutal experience. Mm, Lovely. Now, you grew up in a farm way out in the country uh, outside of Atlanta, but that whole place has changed. In fact, your mother still lives at the same address. Tell us about that. My mother is a relatively new resident at our old address. My parents lived on a farm, bought a farm, and raised us there. They owned it for 35 years. It was a great way to grow up. Mm-hmm. We had a huge barn and cattle and mm-hmm. chickens and pigs and a garden. And my dad was managing a larger horse ranch that was adjacent to mm-hmm. our property. So they lived there to their retirement and then uh, sold the property to the Catholic Diocese of Atlanta, Mm -hmm. who wanted that property as part of a larger campus they were putting together. And specifically, they wanted to build a retirement community where Hmm. we used to live. (laughs) So my parents sold it, moved away for 15 years, bought another house. That became the place of our family gatherings. And then a few years ago, in their late 80s, my parents sold that house and moved into the retirement community on our old property. And so it's kind of surreal to go back to my childhood address and nothing of our place is there except for some of the large oak trees that were in our front and backyards. Mm. It's beautiful what they've done with it. And it's been exactly the place that my parents needed to be these Mm. last years. And now my mother still lives there. Um, And uh, it's just, we couldn't be prouder of what the place became. Uh. 
One book you wrote a few years ago is a collection of prayers entitled A Hungry Soul, Desperate to Taste God's Grace. I love that title. How did you approach writing those prayers? I was sitting in a preaching conference watching uh, preacher after preacher come through and do these little short 30-minute topics. Mm. And, of course, the keynoter as well. And I began to think and started to jot topics down and thought these would make good prayers. It would be it would be fascinating mm. to meditate on some of these phrases and topics that I'm hearing. Mm-hmm. And so I just started making a list and that the genesis of the book was uh, the topics that I jotted down in that time. Mm-hmm. And I began to write prose uh, styled prayers. Mm-hmm that are very conversational, very autobiographical, and uh, very casual. I I remembered a book of those that had been written back in the 60s by a French priest named Michel Quast. Hmm. And so I didn't try to copy his book, but that style that I'd Mm -hmm. been exposed to in a seminary class just had stuck with me, and I'd enjoyed it so much. And so when I began to write these prayers, that's what they ended up sounding a a little like. The list kept growing until there were finally 40 prayers in the book, and it's been by far the best-received, best-selling book that I've written. And probably the piece that if an author is allowed to have a favorite has been my favorite over the years. Well, Charles, your sermon today focuses on the gospel text for this second Sunday after the Epiphany from John chapter 1. Would you read it for us? I'd be glad to. John 1, verses 29 through 42. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and declared, Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but I came baptizing with water for this reason, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John testified, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. The next day, John again was standing with two of his disciples, and as he watched Jesus walk by, he exclaimed, Look! Here is the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. When Jesus turned and saw them following, he said to them, What are you looking for? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come and see. They came and saw where he was staying, and they remained with him that day. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated anointed. He brought Simon to Jesus, who looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You are to be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. 
Charles, last week you preached on Jesus' baptism by John the Baptist from Matthew chapter 3, and this week the gospel shares John the Baptist's encounter with Jesus from John's gospel, a slightly different point of view. I'm curious what struck you in this text as you prepared the sermon. Well, it's pretty noticeable in my sermon that the thing I just couldn't take my eye off of was this awkward transition of these two disciples just picking up and leaving John the Baptist standing there, and they go and follow Jesus. But aren't we glad they did? And so I I do keep my eye on that a little bit. But then I make myself pull away from that and realize, wow, some pretty powerful things happened, one before and one after that. As we will hear, we look forward to hearing your sermon on this, which you've titled, Two Powerful Stories and a Distraction. Charles, thanks for sharing it with us. Thanks for having me back. Every time I prepare to teach or address this story in a message, I realize that something in the scripture here bothers me. At first, it was just a feeling of unease. On balance, the story is one of identity and awakening, a story that helps us with our own discoveries about Jesus. Among other things, it is an account of how one of Jesus' most central followers discovered faith through Christ. How could that be bad? Yet I kept coming back to something that was off-putting for me. What was it? For centuries, the church has had a word for a taboo practice. That word is proselytizing. To proselytize someone, you could be doing something as innocent and good as telling them of your own belief while in a welcome conversation. Nothing automatically wrong with that. But we also use the term in another way. One church might essentially steal someone away from a belief, group, or place where they are already active. You poach them into your own circle, if you will, from another they were already established within. So we use the word to express what many feel is an integrity matter, namely that churches shouldn't recruit against each other. Churches and groups within churches have long been counseled to avoid such practice if for no reason other than the ethic that if we can take someone from your church, then your church could also take someone from ours. John had a group of disciples who followed him, perhaps even before Jesus had his own group. Now, John, in his certainty and conviction about Jesus, pointed out to his own disciples, Look, here is the Lamb of God. We read these words, and this is a beautiful testimony of John's own recognition and faith through Christ. It places him among the very earliest to grasp just who and what Jesus was. The uncomfortable part for me comes in the notion that as soon as John said these words of praise, two of his own disciples switched teams and went right home with Jesus. Realizing that I'm reaching the tolerance limit for some of you at even the hint that Jesus might have done something untoward, that's not really what I'm saying. Nowhere in the story does it suggest that Jesus actually recruited or even invited them to follow. 
they did so of their own accord. What I am saying is that it's at least awkward for me how this plays out, perhaps for you too. All of which illustrates how any of us can react first to something that gets triggered within us and completely miss the real action. In this case, at least a couple of powerful parts of the story that actually bookend the fascinating movement of the disciples. For instance, a fellow pastor notices that the New Testament Gospels give John the Baptist a lot of spotlight. We pay John the Baptist a lot of attention, and eventually we might reach the conclusion that he's pretty important. But for what? If you only listen to him or pay attention to those who don't quite know who this John is, you might wonder why all the focus. Earlier in this gospel, the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And according to John, he confessed and did not deny it, but confessed. Why the double emphasis there? Then to throw all attention off of himself, he says to them, I am not the Messiah. They remain undaunted. What then? Are you Elijah? He answers, I am not. Are you the prophet then? They ask. John responds again in the negative, No. Who are you? They ask. We've got to go back and tell the people who sent us something. What do you say about yourself? John reached back into his knowledge of the words from the prophet Isaiah and quoted him. I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Make straight the way of the Lord. And then when they asked him if he were not Elijah, then why did he baptize? Again, John deflected, I baptize with water, but among you stands one for whom I am not even worthy of tying his shoe. So in our gospel story today, this line of deflection and announcement from John the Baptist continues. John is pointing beyond himself to one who is greater. He is heralding this revolutionary new thing that God has come to do among us. No mere encultured false modesty. John instead actually understands who he is and who Jesus is. He is calling things as he sees them. Many people say that when someone tells you who they are, you should believe them. In this case, John is telling us who he is so that he can make the case for who Jesus is. We hear that, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and declared, Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He goes on to share a compelling first-hand testimony of what he saw. John was in the water with Jesus when the heavens opened up and the voice of God descended on Jesus' shoulder like a dove. He testifies that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. Jesus will baptize not with water but will bring with him the presence of the Holy Spirit. This is powerful news. To the extent anyone took him seriously, John was announcing the presence of God among us. Then, because the promised one had been so awaited, we saw these two disciples take John's word and decide to follow Jesus. Gerald Sloven, in his writing on this text, observes how differently John shows these two coming into Jesus' mentorship. 
rather than being called to follow as he moves along the way. Here in John's Gospel, these disciples seek Jesus out and go to him instead. But what is the other big story here then? It says that in verse 38, When Jesus turned and saw them following, he said to them, What are you looking for? And they said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come and see. They came and saw where he was staying, and they remained with him that day. Jesus' question to them is powerful. It is insightful and one that I consistently ask anyone who approaches me about joining the church I pastor. I ask them versions of it like, what are you finding among us that makes you want to join? Or I may ask them, is there anything in particular that you are hoping to get here? These are not cynical questions. They are not born of distrust or even self-doubt. Instead, they are opportunities for clarity. They are invitations for all parties to know each other better. The answer that John's disciples gave must have been a good one, if you think about it. They responded to the question about what they were looking for by first calling Jesus rabbi. The fact that the writer of John's gospel bothers to translate that for us points us to its significance, because this word meant teacher. They wanted instruction. They wanted to learn from one they felt was able to teach them. Then they asked him where he was staying. As willing disciples, this was tantamount to them saying, We want to sit at your feet and be under your formation. Only then did Jesus extend the invitation, Come and see. Now we find out the identity of one of these disciples who changed from Team John to Team Jesus. He was Andrew. Here the story connects all the dots for us. We are told that Andrew was Simon Peter's brother. The picture is painted. They will stay with Jesus in general, but Andrew seems to have taken a break and ran off pretty quickly to find his brother. He knew someone at home who might want to get in on all of this. I played on a championship baseball team during my teenage years. We were good enough to win our league, but none of us moved very much further to a higher level. For us, those were our glory days. The odd thing is that a couple of the guys had younger brothers. It seemed like they were always underfoot. Sometimes they would show up at our practices they would want to throw with us, and occasionally you could tell they wanted to hit. I saw them mostly as being too young to be out there with us. Truthfully, I saw them as a distraction and worried that they might get hurt because of being a little overmatched. What I couldn't see yet was that both of these little brothers would one day go on to start on the high school's varsity team. One of them played ball in college. The other went into coaching and today is the manager of a U.S. national all-star team that plays an international schedule. In verse 41, Andrew first found his brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah. He brought Simon to Jesus, who looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You are to be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. Hundreds of years worth of yearning for God to speak and to move seemed wrapped up in Andrew's invitation to his brother. Now he, too, will come to Jesus.
Andrew was the first to follow Jesus. He will continue following. The one upon whom an entire people have waited is proclaimed in these words of invitation that Andrew extends to his brother. But when we consider Jesus' own inner circle of followers that emerged later in the Gospels, we think not of Andrew. We think instead of Peter, James, and John. They were privy to conversations when others weren't. They accompanied him to the Garden of Gethsemane and even on to the foot of the cross. Peter may have in some ways been a little rough around the edges. Certainly he seems impulsive, always ready to jump. But he was the one whom Jesus would later charge with feeding his sheep. Maybe those qualities served him well when it came to faithfulness to his Lord. He especially would go on to be regarded as primary among the apostles, the father of the New Testament church. If what we hope for is to get to know Jesus, the story is revealing. But we have to catch ourselves amid our distractions. We have to pull away from the curiosities eventually so that we catch the essence. John was convinced. He was clear about who he was relative to Jesus. He understood the importance of his role to prepare the way and to proclaim the good news of one who had arrived. The disciples discerning who Jesus was is also a powerful story. John's own testimony helped them to figure things out. Would that we might have their clarity and willingness to follow. If Jesus asked what we are looking for, could we answer like they did? Then we might be able to make our wisest choices about whose voice was primary in our lives. We might have an easier time telling God's voice from others that rise above the din. Two powerful stories that inspire us because they remind us of who Jesus was and what he can do in our lives as well. Amen. Our preacher today was the Reverend Dr. Charles Qualls, Senior Pastor of Franklin Baptist Church in Franklin, Virginia. For a free transcript of his sermon titled, Two Powerful Stories and a Distraction, call us at 404-815-9110. That's 404-815-9110. Or write to us at Day One, 2715 Peachtree Road, Atlanta, Georgia, 30305. Please keep in mind that Day One depends on the financial gifts of faithful listeners like you. We're grateful for your help. This is Peter Wallace. Next time on Day One, we're honored to have with us Bishop Kevin Strickland, Bishop of the Southeastern Synod of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, based in Atlanta, Georgia. Don't miss his meaningful message, Fishing in Unusual Places, Finding Faithful Fish. That's next week on Day One.
This is Peter Wallace. If you appreciate the wonderful preachers Day One brings you week after week, I hope you'll send a much-needed donation. Help us make this our best year ever. Mail your gift to Day One, 2715 Peachtree Road, Atlanta, Georgia, 30305. Or call us at 404-815-9110. Or give securely online at dayone.org. And thank you. Now, our Day One preacher, Charles Qualls, offers some final reflections about his sermon today, Two Powerful Stories and a Distraction. And Charles, you packed a lot of interesting insights into your sermon. First of all, you said this account from John's Gospel made you a bit uncomfortable because it seems like Jesus was proselytizing John the Baptist's disciples, although he wasn't. They willingly followed Jesus. But that was something of a trigger for you in view of some churches that proselytize or steal other churches' members. But you said that's a distraction because we can miss the real action. But I wonder if you'd say more about possible triggering details in the scriptures. How do we handle them and focus on the real message of God for us? I wanted to model for our listeners how any of us can get distracted with things when we're reading a piece of scripture and it's not to say that those things are not of meaning or right. import. Obviously, they are. But sooner or later, we have to catch ourselves doing that sometimes and reel ourselves back in and say, okay, what is here for me? Mm. Why is this important? Why do I need to study this? And when we do that, this story had two other really beautiful, powerful movements that should shape and inform our faith. I, I love this story. Mm. So John the Baptist points beyond himself to one who is greater, you said, and so these disciples seek Jesus out and go to him, a powerful response indeed. And the other powerful story here revolves around Jesus's question, what are you looking for? You explained that their answer indicates they want to sit at his feet and learn from him, and Jesus responds, come and see, a beautiful invitation. And Andrew was one of these disciples, and he goes to bring his brother Simon, called Peter, to Jesus, and thereby changes the world. But it all seems so easy for them to just follow Jesus like that. How do we gain their clarity and commitment to follow Jesus as they did? Don't you wish you could read between the lines in the Gospels occasionally? (laughs) The disciples following Jesus, whether he's walking by the sea and saying, come follow me, or these two who just bolt from John the Baptist and go follow him as soon as John identifies him, it all seems so easy, so clear. The reality of it couldn't have quite been the way it comes off in the Gospels, but I do think it's instructive to us. I hope that any of us can be grounded enough and nurtured enough in our faith that if somebody like Jesus looked at us and said, well, what are you looking for? Mm. We might have an answer. They certainly did. Yeah. Charles, what's one thing from your sermon today that you hope our listeners will carry with them in the days ahead? I want my worshipers, my church members, my participants who show up to show up with more than just a schedule obligation or a habit in mind. I want them in a perfect world to know why they're there. And that's the question Jesus answered them. And these disciples, to their credit, they knew why they were following him. They knew why they were there. Mm. 
Charles Qualls, thank you for being with us. Glad to be back. Day One is the voice of America's mainline Protestant churches. Visit us online at dayone.org. Our program is recorded and edited by Donald Jones and produced by Peter Wallace. Thank you for joining us. I'm Sherry Miller wishing you all God's blessings on day one and forever.